Father, we come before you now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus, and we just ask for your blessing on this word. And Lord, give us tender hearts to receive and grace to live it out in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Well, on the way in this morning, um, saw something I hadn't seen before. I mean, maybe you've seen it, but I haven't. You know, a, a vulture just walking across the road. You know, and uh, so I'm going. Oh, that's kind of weird. You know, I mean, I've never seen vultures just walking along. They're pretty goofy walking things. And uh, but then we come by a church. And uh, there's all these vultures on the front lawn, just walking around on the front lawn. So, you know, Jesse and I, we, are, we begin joking with each other. I said, it must be a very dead church. The vultures have come to devour them. You know, and so we're just uh, joking about that way. And, and so while I'm sitting here, I'm just kind of have that image in my head. And I'm going, God, do you want me to preach a different message? And uh, so actually I pulled it up. I probably hadn't preached it for... Ten years or more, and uh, but I don't think I'm going to. It's a it's an evangelist uh, message that just be uh, uh, pretty intense. But um, so it was on the Valley of Dry Bones, and so what is it? Well, you have the in Ezekiel there. You have the the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, and what is the dry bones symbolic of? Of a defeated army, and what happened is when an army was defeated, many times. Uh, the bodies would just be left out there as an emblem of disgrace. That their, their dead bones would be, that their bodies would be picked by the vultures and wild beasts and the bones would be out there just be whitened by the sun and a continual testimony of their barrenness and the deadness and their defeat. And it is a picture of what it was for Israel, of what Israel had become, a valley of dry bones. But it's also what the church uh, in a large way has has become is a valley of dry bones, and uh, the problem is is the dry bones don't know they're dry bones. They don't understand how dead they are, and really what their condition is. And so you can have a church of of corpses there that you just have the vultures out there picking the bones clean, and they don't even comprehend. They still go on with their religious rituals, still do the same things because that's what they've done week after week, year after year, and that's all they're familiar with. So they continue doing it, and they don't even understand how dead they are and how much more their bones are being bleached out as a testimony to the world of their defeat. And a very sad picture. The only hope was the Word of God that would come through the voice of the prophet that would speak first to bring the flesh upon the bones, bring bone to bone and flesh upon the bones, but they're still just an army of corpus. That's all they are, just a bun- an army of dead people. So they have come together somewhat, you know, but there's still no life in them. And what good is it if you have an army, this potential of, of a tremendous army that could go and, and do tremendous damage to the kingdom of hell, but they're just corpses. That's all it is. The breath of life still isn't in them. And so then he has... Uh, the Lord has Ezekiel prophesy again. And now the breath comes into them. And when the breath comes into them, they become a living army. And uh, that is what we're desperately in need of, to become a living army. And uh, to become a people that really have the, the Spirit of God working and breathing through us uh, for the sake of a perishing world and for the glory of God. And that's what we really, really need. But that image was just really kind of just uh, pressed on me and... Uh, I was almost going to preach it, but I just felt I needed to go to what I had first been shown. So what I want to look at today is the purpose of man. The purpose of man. You may have heard this before. You know, Pastor Jeff probably brought it out in uh, a particular way. But uh, what is the purpose of man? Well, it's twofold to glorify God in everything we say and do and to enjoy Him forevermore. Now, what happened was is you had these group of people that were called the Westminster Divines. And they uh, were a council of divines or theologians. And then this was members of the English Parliament. And I can't tell you whether they were saved or, or not, but it was uh, combined the theologians and the members of Parliament that they were appointed by Parliament to restructure the Church of England because the Church of England was the state religion. 
And so they went in to restructure it, and they went in for uh, 11 years from uh, 1643 to 1653. They went and restructured the whole church, and that would be the liturgy and prayers and all kinds of stuff with it. And so, you know, I'm not going to comment whether that was good or bad, but uh, what they did, one of the things that they did is they debated the purpose of man. And so just think about this for a moment. If you have these theologians, educated clergy, and then you have politicians getting together to debate the purpose of man, you know, it, it could take 10, 12 years, you know, just debate that. And when they're done, they'd have a document bigger than Obamacare. You know, it's like, you know, it'd just be this terribly huge thing. But what came out of it was absolutely phenomenal. It was that very simple thing. They, after all the debate, they whittle it right down. What is the purpose of man? To glorify God in everything we do and to enjoy Him forevermore. Now, I know that most of the time Christians can think about the idea, well, yeah, we're supposed to glorify God, but do they understand? Do we understand to what extent we're to do that and what that really means? And then how many people really understand what is to enjoy God? I mean, is that even a concept in the Christian's heart of that we are... Uh, we exist to enjoy God. And I think that's a very important thing, and it's something we need to understand, because without understanding this, our Christianity gets very heavy, very just burdensome, and there's not the joy in it that should be there. Well, we were created to walk in the joy that God has, because He offers His children that joy. And so we should know that joy and live in that joy, and there's tremendous victory in that joy as well. But we are created to be a people in fellowship with God. Now, that's all of mankind. It's not just the church. All of mankind was created to know God. God did not create some people to know Him and some people to go to hell. That is not the Bible. It's not what it teaches. God created all of mankind that they would walk with Him in intimate fellowship. That was the model that was given before the, the terrible rebellion of Adam and Eve. They were there to walk with God, to know God. And every day they met with Him in the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden was the first church. We could think of that, the first church. It was the first sanctuary where they could go in there and they could meet with God and they could be with Him and fellowship with Him. And it's what they did every single day. It would have been the highlight of their day. So they had whatever busyness that they were to do as being humans in a world of paradise, and uh, they had to take care of the garden to maintain it, whatever that meant. I have no idea. I've tried to think about it, but could never even comprehend what that would mean. But yet every day they would meet with God, so God would walk with them and commune with them and teach them, and, and they would be able to revel in the wonder of that presence. And just at times I've thought of this, is that, that what about the silence that they would just walk along in silence and all you would just, all Adam and Eve would have felt is just the wonder of this holy presence just permeating them and the, the wonder of that, the joy of that place of fellowshipping with God. That's what we were created for. But we know the story. Sin entered in and separated Adam and Eve from God and then separated Adam and Eve from each other and then separated Adam and Eve from even creation. Everything suffered. So much so that we even have in the New Testament that it says that, that all of creation groans under the weight of sin. That somehow the potency of the sin of Adam and Eve and the sin that we have done is bringing death to stars. Death to galaxies. That everything is groaning under the weight of it. That death is coming upon all things because we were the ones who brought it into God's creation. And so after the fall, God's purpose for mankind didn't change. We were still to be a people that were to be in fellowship with Him, a covenant people of God that were to know Him, to walk with Him. And so we know that God knew all these things before creation came into existence. So you know, it's, it's not like it upset God or changed His plan or anything else, but His plan still remained the same, that He was going to build a community, a people that had that twofold purpose, to glorify God in everything they say and do, and to enjoy Him forevermore. And so what happened after the terrible rebellion? The rebellion started growing deeper in mankind. In mankind. Adam and Eve had children. They had children. Now They had children. Mankind's growing, but the rebellion was growing as well, until eventually a, a point happened. It tells us in Genesis 4, chapter 26, that then men 
began to call upon the name of the Lord. There was something that happened that as this idolatry started setting into the heart after the rebellion of Adam and Eve, and that's what happened. You see, when they rebelled, what what, what the immediate result was is they went and grabbed hold of God and threw him off the throne of their heart and put themselves on it. So it became this self-idolatry that was defining them, where life became then all about them. And they didn't understand it, but there they are hiding from God instead of meeting with God. They were created to walk with him, to meet with him, and now they're running from him. They went and saw their nakedness, and they tried to cover their own nakedness. And the only way that their nakedness could be covered is there had to be the first sacrifice. And what was the first sacrifice? And I would say that would be the first death on this planet. It was, uh, uh, it was an animal that was sacrificed so that Adam and Eve could be clothed, so that they would no longer be naked. God began right after the fall to start laboring to the end of a community of faith, of people that would would glorify Him in everything they say and do and enjoy Him. But sin was breaking that. The self-idolatry was breaking that. It was destroying it. But then there was a people, a, a family that started seeking God. That phrase then began made men to call upon the name of the Lord could also be that men began to call in the name of the Lord. It could be in Hebrew translated that way. And, and uh, the thought could be that men began to call themselves at that time by the name of the Lord. So it wasn't just that they were now calling on the name of the Lord. They were calling themselves by the name of the Lord. They were calling themselves, in essence, we might say it like this, the people of God. We belong to God. We are His. He is the goal, the prize, what we are seeking for. We are wanting to glorify Him and enjoy Him. But the mass of humanity, all the other people, had rejected that. They rejected it. And they grew deeper and deeper into their rebellion. But yet there was this family... Because you see, God would have a community of faith. He would have a people that would would begin to understand their purpose, their reason for being, why they were created. You weren't just brought into this world because your parents came together. There was divine purpose behind it all that he knew beforehand. And that purpose that began with Adam and Eve was to be passed on to all of Adam's progeny. That we were to be a people that was the same, to have a, that same desire to glorify Him in everything we do and to enjoy Him. That was to become something in all of us. But sin went and just, just uh, almost eradicated that in, in the heart of men. So before the flood, there was this one family, one family that chose to be this community of faith. One family that chose to rise above the wickedness that men were, li- were living. And this one family then chose to glorify God in everything they said and did and chose to learn how to enjoy Him. And that was the family of Enoch. And Enoch learned how to do that so well that he pleased God to such an extent that you have the first rapture mentioned in the church. He's went and taken out of here. Just all of a sudden, wham, he's gone. And I do not believe that happened when he was going on some mountain walk. I believe it was either in a family reunion or in the marketplace or wherever it was, somewhere where it was a public thing, and all these people just saw him there one moment, wham, he's gone. And God just said, son, you are just making me so happy. I just want to bring you home. And so that was passed on to his children and ultimately passed on to his great-great-grandson, Noah. The only family that lived through the flood, through the judgment. The only family. And so out of Noah, I'm not going to go through the whole history of that, but out of Noah came then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Came this this family because mankind went right back to what they were before the flood. They didn't learn. I mean, the children of Noah didn't really learn. And so even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham was a Chaldean. Abraham was the the, the son of a pagan worshiper. He had the whole pantheon of gods, the, the Chaldean idolatry. That's what he was immersed in. That's what he was raising. That's what he knew. And we're not told how God came to Noah, or excuse me, Abraham in the beginning, but God came to Abraham and showed him that all the idols of the people were just lies. And that there was only one God. He created all that is. And so Abraham began to worship the one true God and rejected 
all the idols, all the lies, all the deception that mankind had been engulfed into that point. And he began to worship God, and then he started passing that on to his children and to his children then. And so you have this whole thing of this community of faith beginning, and you have the family of, of Abraham beginning to grow through Isaac and Jacob until eventually they end up in Egypt, and they're this massive uh, group of people. You know, anywhere, uh, theologians will say when the Exodus happened, anywhere from one to three million people left Egypt. This massive amount of people, but yet even in that situation, they did not really know their God. And when you see it, when you see what goes on in the worshiping of the golden calf, you see that they ended up taking the, the gods of Egypt and incorporating them into their own worship, and they just out, added Yahweh a little bit to it. Rather than just worshiping Him alone, they were a, a people that were slaves, and they looked at Egypt as the superpower of the world. And so their gods must be more powerful than our God, because our God, look at, we're in slavery. The God went and showed himself greater, and he took the superpower of the day and brought it to its knees. Miracle by miracle by miracle, and miracle by miracle by miracle, raising up the children of Israel to see that God was doing something, that he was not a, a God that was small or some local deity, but he was able to, to rescue them. What was he out to do? He was out to make a community of faith. He was out to make a people unique in all the world, unique from all of mankind. You see, God's plan was still there. He wanted all of mankind to be saved. That's what we're told in Peter. It's God's will that all are saved. He doesn't want any to perish. But yet, to reach all of mankind, he had to make a unique people. He had to make a people that were set apart, a people that were his own, a people that walked with God, a people that knew their God and lived for the glory of God and lived to enjoy him. And so you do have the Exodus. What do they do? They come out of Egypt, but their rebellion, the Egypt that was in the Israelites, Forty years they had to wander to get Egypt out of them, yet it still didn't work. They go in the promised land. How long does it take before idolatry is right back in them? You see, this rebellion that began with Adam and Eve became so entrenched in mankind that they have this terrible time ever leaving that idolatry and that self-idolatry to look at the Savior, to know Him, to live for His glory instead of their own, and to live to enjoy Him instead of seeking to enjoy themselves through their own sinful pleasures. So he was making a people, a community of faith, a holy nation they were to be, but they failed, utterly, utterly failed. So this one kingdom that was to be of 12 tribes ended up being divided into two kingdoms because of the rebellion of Solomon, because Solomon became such an evil man. He became an extremely evil man, making temples in Jerusalem to all these pagan idols, even to Molech, horrendous evil that that man did. But yet, because he was a son of David, God said, I won't wrench the kingdom from him. I will do it through his son. And so, a bloodless civil war, and the kingdom now is separated. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Northern kingdom of Israel never walked with God. Never did. Not one righteous king. Every one of their kings were wicked. The southern kingdom of Judah had some righteous kings. And when you look at the righteous kings, such as what Pastor Jeff shared last week, you see through some of the righteous kings, revival coming. So God used them to try and bring life back to the people. But yet when you look in Isaiah, I can't remember off the top of my head where it is, but in Isaiah, a rebuke came to the people. It says, you have returned to me only in pretension. Just superficially, outwardly, you've, you've, just, you've returned to me just with the show, but you're still this valley of dry bones. You're not really in that place where you are living for my glory, and you're not in that place where you are living to enjoy me. So what happened? The destruction of the two kingdoms. The northern kingdom totally destroyed. Totally, completely destroyed. The people scattered throughout the world never brought back. 
The southern kingdom, 150 years later, Babylon comes in. The first ones were the Assyrians. The Babylons come in, and they end up destroying the kingdom, but a remnant is left. They go into captivity, and after 70 years, they're allowed to return and build the temple again. God is still working to try and make a community of faith, a people that live for the glory of God and to enjoy Him forevermore. Still giving them another chance, another opportunity that they might come to that place and walk with Him in such a way. But they failed. They failed, utterly failed, because now you come into the days of Jesus. And what had they done? Yes, Israel from their Babylonian captivity was delivered from idolatry. They were no longer idols of, of the, the, that the pagans had, of Molech and Baal and Azra and all the other ones. They didn't worship those gods anymore. But they had resurrected another god, because, you see, they weren't really living for the glory of God or to enjoy Him forevermore. Everything became just ritual. It was dead. It was still all about self. And so what did they do? They had the idol of dead religion. The idol of a valley of dry bones, as if that was a noble thing. And Jesus broke into our world to do what? To bring once again the hope of a community of faith, of a people that would be separate from the world, that would live fully, completely, and wholeheartedly for the glory of God, and then learn how to enjoy Him forevermore. The other day, I can't remember what it was. Couldn't sleep, got up, and um, just as kind of vision, I don't want to say vision, vision, but just this thought came into my head and broke me down. I was just weeping. And uh, there's this, you know, I, I don't talk very often about movies and, you know, we just have a few we look at, but one that I really do like is called Risen. If you've not seen it, it's a good movie. And it's a fictitious movie in part. Um, it's about a, a centurion that is to investigate the missing body of Jesus. Okay? So, pretty neat, and he comes to faith through it all. But at the very end, you have Nathaniel, and the centurion is there next to Nathaniel, and he says, why do you follow him? And then, then that scene, what you have is you have this leper, and the people of the village there are, are driving him away, cruel words, and throwing stones and beating him with sticks and, and Jesus sees the man and his heart goes out. And this is not a biblical account, okay? So this is added, but it is so beautiful. And what happens is, is Jesus goes out there and takes this leper in his arms, wraps this man in his arms, a leper you're not allowed to touch. You'd be unclean, but this is the resurrected Christ, you know? And the man is healed. And you know, I broke down weeping just going... All the misery and pain that man went through. Yet I bet you he'd be willing to do it again for that same hug. Do it all again. Go through all the pain, all the rejection, all the sorrow because of the power of that one embrace of God. That one embrace. You see, he really is the one who brings joy. One author said, Our goal must become unbroken fellowship with God, which is the highest honor and reward given to man. Our goal must become, as Christians, the place of enjoying God, of unbroken fellowship with Him. And in that place of unbroken fellowship, you have both the aspect of glorifying God and you have the aspect of enjoying Him. And I can just say this, you know, I, you know, I have preached at hundreds and hundreds of churches and rehabs and so on, and, you know, I, I've talked with all kinds of pastors, tons and tons of them. And, and, you know, it's really not a lot of pastors understand even enjoying God. I go through stories where I've tried to share this with pastors. Some hear, some don't. But the place of, of, of wanting to enjoy Him is, is the treasure of the Christian life. But let's look at these two things, to glorify Him and to enjoy Him. So we're created to live for God's good pleasure and divine purposes. You understand that's what we are created for? You are not created for your own agenda. You are not created to live your life your way. That is the result of the fall, of the rebellion of Adam and Eve. 
That is not God's plan. We were created for His good pleasure, for His purposes. But in our rebelliousness, we think that if I live for Him and for His purposes and submit to His ways, that He's going to take something from me, that He's going to rob something from me, that I'm not going to be fulfilled. And we believe the lies that if we're going to be happy, we have to somehow live our own life, our own way, even apart from God at times, or at least a portion of it, so I can have my will and my want satisfied. And yet, every time mankind does that, every time individuals do that, it produces the exact opposite of what they're expecting. They want happiness, they don't get happiness. They want joy, they don't have joy. They want peace, they don't end up having peace. Because they have rebelled against the very purpose which they were created for. And I'm speaking to Christians here as well. We want Jesus to be a part of our life. Are we really at the place where we're aching and yearning for Him to be the full, complete definer of our life? That He defines how we live, how we talk, our marriages, everything, our relationships. That we come to the place of God, I want everything in my life to be to your glory. Everything to be pleased to you. Everything. I want the well done from you that at the end that I have done a good job in obeying you, following you, and loving you. You see, really that's pretty radical for the church because the church doesn't want a faith that goes that far. They just want the addition. You know, Jesus... Give me your salvation, make me happy, bless me, and make sure I go to heaven. But that's not what you were just created for. You understand, those are byproducts of it. You're created to, in everything you do, to live for God's good pleasure and divine purposes. That's what you were created for. This is a general expectation for all of mankind, not just for the church. You understand, this is what God expects for all of mankind. And part of the reason for the judgment that will come upon people, yes, they are lawbreakers, willful lawbreakers. They will be judged for their breaking of the law. But they have defied the very reason for being that God created them. They say, I will not come under your rule. I will rule myself. I will do what I want to do the way I want to do it because that is my right as a human being. But this aspect of living for His good pleasure and divine purposes is now revealed uniquely through the church. We're to become the living epistles of it. We are to be the people that the world's looking at and realizing, I see now what a human being was made to be. You understand? We're to be that example. They're to look at us and say, I see the beauty of the faith in you, and I see what's not in me, and I realize that I need what you have. That we should be demonstrating the reality of this faith in such a way that they're seeing obeying God is a good thing. Rather than so often what they see is the breakdown of marriages and the nightmares and all the problems and the issues and the recycling of the same sins over and over again. And they say, why do I want that? We are to glorify Him through repentance. Now, you know, that's a very interesting thing. How do we glorify Him through repentance? Well, we glorify Him through repentance because we're sinners that sin. And so when we sin, we need to understand this tremendous gift of repentance that He's given us and not run away from it, not deny it, not fight against it, or not wait long times until we deal with it. But learn how to respond very quickly, to, to learn how to respond that when He convicts us of sin, whether it's in a thought, word, or deed, that we respond and we understand that God is glorified in my repentance. Well, He doesn't want me to have to repent. He wants me to walk in a place where I'm not needing to repent because I haven't sinned. But that's not going to happen fully in this life. We can walk more and more holy before Him and sin less and less as we truly mature in the faith. But repentance is going to have to be something that's there. And that means that family, friends, the church, and the world need to see us repent or see the evidence of repentance in our life. So when we do something wrong at work, That we can go and repent and say, okay, God, forgive me for what I did, for I acted, for what I said. And they can see then the change of that repentance in our life. They can see evidence of it. Well, you're not quite doing it the way you used to. You're getting better because now you're stopping that. The evidence that, that this salvation is having a greater influence in us. We glorify Him through the surrender of our life. And you know, surrender is one of the hardest things we're going to do. You want to know why? We're control freaks. We want control. It goes back to the fall, what that produced in us, this this self-idolatry where I want to rule. And I think that my way is going to make me happy. 
But yet how many times do I have to go through that lesson that my way never makes me happy? You know, we go through the lesson, we learn it, okay, God, your way is best. And then what, a week later, same thing, the same thing. Is it ever going to really get inside of me? You know, I mean, it's this, um, this crazy cycle we go through. But yet, surrender is this wonderful place where we just, we're giving up the control, we're, we're, we're stopping fighting. And that's what Paul refers to in the book of Hebrews when he talks about entering into our Sabbath rest, ceasing from our own works. We're no longer fighting against them. We just find this place of, sw- of surrender, sweet surrender, just learning how to say yes. You know, for all of you that are parents, you really like it when your children say yes to you. <laughs> and you really don't like it when they say no. Right? Isn't it true that many times a first word that a child learns is the word no? You want to know why they learn that? Because the parents are having to say no so much. <laughs> no, stop that. No, stop that. So instead of mama or, 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 or papa, it's no, no. Crazy, this rebelliousness in us is so deep. You know, and here he's offering us the best thing, the best thing, just surrender. Stop fighting against me. Why resist me? Why, why do you continue doing the same things? What benefit do you get out of that, that you continue doing it? And so this takes us the next step further, that we glorify him through loving obedience. That we just come to a place as, as adult children of God that we find obeying Him a joy. That we find obeying Him just, just man, it's so good, you know. Now, is it sometimes hard? Yes, it's hard. But you want to know it's really hard? Well, go back into sin. End up in hell. You'll know what hard is. You don't know what hard is now. You really don't. It's because we become so self-absorbed, looked at ourselves, and we just see that, that we don't really see what hard really is. And we need to come to the place that we begin to enjoy this God, to live for His glory instead of for ourselves. The more we obey Him, the greater the joy we get out of that obedience. John told us in his epistle, chapter 5, verse 3, this is love for God, to obey His commands. And His commands aren't burdensome. Why is His commands burdensome? Because we don't love him like we should. Because we look at particular things as well, he's telling me not to do that, but I want to do that, so you know, I guess i got to do what he tells me to do. Well, there's no love in that, though. What's absent is loving God. Because the more we love him, the easier it is to say, you want me to not do that anymore? Okay, God, great. You want me to do this now? Yes, God, I'll do this. This is what you want me to do. I will do it, and I will find joy in it, because I know it's your will. I know this is what you're calling me to do and be. And so in that obedience, the burden is gone. It becomes a joy. It's just this desire to want to bring joy to the Father's heart. It's like you just want to please Him. We glorify Him also by having His heart. I think that's one of the greatest compliments that a person can ever receive is somebody wanting to be like them. Now, you know, that's what happens with the little children, right? They look at mom, they look at dad, and they want to be like them. So what does, what does uh, the, the little boy do? What does Junior do? Dad's going out into the garage. He's going to do some work. And Junior's then rummaging through his toy box, and he finds his, his, his plastic hammer, his plastic saw, and his little toolbox, and he runs out there because he wants to help dad. He wants to be like dad. Right? Isn't that what it is? The son looking at the father or the daughter looking at the mother and they see that. They see this is what womanhood is or manhood is and they want to emulate it. They want to be like it. The purer the example before the child, the, the greater hope they have of following because they see this lived out in, a, in a, a pure way. But what is it to be for us? We are to be gazing on Christ. We are to be looking at Him. He is to be the prize of our life. And, and we look at Him. We want to emulate Him. We want to be like Him. We want Christ-likeness in our life to define us. Not a portion of our life, but every fiber of our life. Because if we're adoring sons and daughters, then we want to be like Him. If we don't really want to be like Him, it's because we're not adoring sons and daughters. So what did Jesus come into this world to do? To seek and to save what was lost. For what purpose? To make that community of faith. The people that would glorify Him and enjoy Him. And you know, I have been so divided in my own heart on this when I just think of Jesus walking this planet, how I would have loved to live at that time. And and then I think, oh man, I don't know if I would because I might be one of the crowd crying crucify Him. 
But yet, just think about what that closeness was. Think about what that nearness was. Think about the, those, those times where Jesus was, was with His disciples around the fire and He's just sharing with them. In the podcast uh, that I just recorded, I brought out a situation of where one of the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray after Jesus had a time of prayer. And usually he prayed by himself. Sometimes he'd take a couple disciples with him, such as on the Mount of Transfiguration. This time he's praying with his disciples, or at least his disciples are there with him and hear him pray. And I'll guarantee you, if his prayer was dead, nobody would go up to him and say, teach us how to pray. You don't go to a dead man and say, teach me how to pray. Right? You want to know what I, I brought out in the podcast? This is I really believe this. I don't can't give you a verse to prove it or anything else, but I really believe it. I believe that it was very purposeful that Jesus was praying with them and as he was praying and he began to talk with the Father, the Holy Spirit just started falling upon, upon him and upon the disciples. Next thing you know, the disciples are on their faces weeping and wailing under conviction and under joy of the presence of God. And, you know, their, their, their eyes are just, just flowing with water and their nose is running with snot. And, you know, they're just on the ground and the grass and whatever else is all over them. They're looking like an absolute mess, but they're in the presence of God. And then when Jesus is done praying, you go... Teach me how to pray. You understand? There was something that was there, reveling in the wonder of this God, living for His glory. That's what He was striving to teach them, that this is what it means to be a human being, to live for my glory and to have my heart for a perishing world. So He told them, just before He ascended into heaven, go into all the world and make disciples. Build my kingdom. Build my family. Build this body of Christ. And you build it by becoming part of the body of Christ and resembling the head, becoming like Jesus. And the more Christ-like we become, the more people see the reality of the faith and it becomes beautiful to them. Are we portraying to the world the beauty of salvation, the beauty of the Savior? And so we glorify God by being like Jesus. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. That's a verse all of us need to know. That's Christianity in a nutshell. That's what it's all about. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. That is an absolute statement there. Without me you cannot do nothing. Without me you cannot even glorify me. Without me you can enjoy me. If you're going to enjoy me and glorify me, you must do it through me. And it must come through this place of dependency because you can't bear fruit apart from abiding in the vine. You can't bear fruit apart from being in that place of near and deep fellowship with me because it's the only place that it can come. And then in the 8th verse he said, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. So first he said, you'll glorify me, then you'll glorify the Father, but you glorify the Son and you glorify the Father. You know, you can't glorify one and not glorify the fullness of the, of the Godhead. One more point before I move on to enjoying Him. is we glorify Him by walking in Pentecostal power. I'll tell you what, church, it's what we need. We need power in the church today. We need power. We need to get beyond our own ability, our own wisdom, our own way of thinking and realize we need Pentecostal power and God is glorified through it. The Father was glorified in the Son and the Son did unbelievable miracles. Many we miss where there are accounts where it says, and everyone in the multitude was healed. Everyone. Can you imagine a multitude of 5,000 people Every one of them healed. Can you imagine what that crowd would be like? I mean, we see movies of the life of Christ and there are all these stoic people out there just sitting around nodding their head in intellectual assent and they fail to understand what is you heal a multitude of people, they're not going to be sitting around bobbing their heads. You know, there's going to be some mayhem there. There's going to be some excitement. There's going to be some screaming and shouting because God has showed up and brought healing to them, deliverance to demoniacs. He is glorified through the supernatural. You see that in the book of Acts. He is glorified when we walk in the power of God. He's glorified when we have the faith to believe for the supernatural. 
And so we need to go beyond where we're at right now and understand that God is wanting to do something greater because His glory can be made more manifest through us if we would understand what Pentecost really is all about. It's not about being doctrinally different from some other people. It's about operating in the power of the Holy Ghost for signs and wonders so that God is glorified. The second part of the purpose of man is to enjoy him forevermore. I don't want anybody to raise your hand, but how many of you think of this faith right now as a have to? It's what you have to do because you don't want to go to hell, but you have not yet found the joy in serving Christ. There's a lot more people in that condition than what we understand. And you know what? That's a miserable religion. I'm glad then that at least you're saved to the point that you're going to make heaven your home. Some, as we're told in Jude, they are saved by fire. They're saved by the, by the skin of their teeth. Barely get there. But He has so much more for us. Why settle for the mere, the mere basics of barely getting by, hoping that we're, we're Christian enough to make heaven our home, but not in the place of really wanting to walk in the victory and the power and the joy that He has for us. So we glorify God by enjoying Him. The joy of intimate fellowship. Well, this week, my daughter got engaged. So, 45 years old, uh, never married, never lived with a guy, okay? So she's been a a, a good girl. And uh, I won't go through the whole story, but... um, you know, if she was like going, well, to the boy, like, okay, well, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah I, I don't have anything else to do. Let's get married, you know. But you know what? She went and text Jesse. And there she was with the ring. You know, this big old ring on her finger. She's engaged now and this huge smile on her face. Isn't that what it should be with us and Jesus? Such joy. Such joy that we belong to Him. Such joy. That He rescued us. Such joy. Shouldn't that be what really defines our life? We glorify God by enjoying Him and it is the only way we can truly glorify God. I'm going to share with you a very heavy verse. And we need to understand the truth of this. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 47 through 48. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity. Therefore, in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. That's a serious verse. Why would judgment come upon them? Because he says, you did not joyfully serve your God. You see, that's what happened with Israel. They did not joyfully serve God. They had created this dead religion of rituals and do's and don'ts and sacrificial systems that originally God put much of it there, but they built so much upon it and everything else, and they never understood the purpose of it, that it was just this miserable, dead, heavy religion. That was never of God's making. That was man's making. So there was no joy in the serving. People didn't find the joy in it. They couldn't do things and had to do other things that that they should. And all these ceremonies and washings and all the commands that were there, just heavy burden upon them. God wasn't glorified. He says, you didn't enjoy me. You didn't understand what this relationship was about. You made it about do's and don'ts. You made it that I can't do this and I got to do that. And you failed to understand the prize. You failed to understand what the treasure really was. So you look to this, these do's and don'ts thinking that's what I was pleased with, but you bring no glory to me through that because the only way you can bring glory to me is this must be a relationship of joy, that you love being with me, that you love serving me, you love following me, you love obeying me. Christianity, the entirety of the biblical faith is about fellowship with God. So many verses I could pull from, so many I could bring this out. But I'll just share one. That it's a beautiful verse. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. And this is one of the prayers in Ephesians that Paul prays for the Ephesians. 
He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So he's saying that he wants us to be filled with the fullness of God. How? By knowing the depths, heights, and riches of God's love. And I'm not talking about the popish way that the love of God is preached in, the, in, in so much of the church today that it's such a watered-down, compromised version. But that we begin to really understand the love of God. And you know what the love of God does? When we begin to understand it, we understand it as the, one of the strongest demands that we could have is follow me with everything within you. Love me with everything within you. Serve me with everything that's inside of you. Glorify me with the entirety of your life because I have loved you so fully, completely, beyond anything you can imagine. I have loved you even when you were so unlovable and miserable and evil in your life. I have loved you and cared for you. Now, I'm calling you to love me with absolutely everything in return. No compromise. Complete and total abandonment to this God who has loved so perfectly. So, do we love God with a passion like that? That's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> Not one we necessarily want to process fully and be able to answer, but we should. Do we have a passion to be with Jesus? Do we have a passion to be with Him? Does your heart long for times that you just want to sit at His feet? You just want to commune with Him? I'm talking about getting away from the ritual that we have to do. Now, I think it's good to have a discipline in prayer. We need it. Otherwise, if you wait for time and chance, it's not going to happen. But it can't just be a discipline because then you're just doing something no different than the Pharisees of old. But it needs to be this thing that, that we are longing for Him. We are separating ourselves to be with Him, communing with Him because we want that fellowship. We are wanting to go to the garden to spend time with Him, to walk with Him, because we find that to be the greatest joy of our life. And when He becomes the joy of our life, then it becomes the joy of our life to live for His glory. We find this wonderful deliverance from living for self. So we are created to be touched by God and to touch Him. Do you ever think about that? Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. I guarantee you they were touched by Him and they could touch Him. I don't know how that worked. They call that a theophany, okay, a, 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 some type of manifestation of God. And so here was God walking with them, and I believe it was Jesus, okay, so here he is walking with him in those times. I mean, could you just imagine what one little touch? Just one little touch. And the wonder of that presence, of that holy presence, the joy that would just flood the soul with one little touch. See, we were created to touch him. I'm sorry to say there are some churches out there, they don't, they don't want the Holy Spirit anywhere around. You know, they're so terrified of him. And they, but but what, what happens, they don't ever know that what it is to be touched by God and to touch Him. They don't know that intimate fellowship. It becomes a dead religion, basically. Nothing of, of nearness. And He wants our nearness. He longs for nearness. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our nearness. But we desperately need His. We desperately need His. T. Austin Sparks made this interesting point. He said, to learn Christ, we must first see Christ. The mark of a life governed by the Holy Spirit is that such a life is continually and ever more and more occupied with Christ, that Christ is becoming greater and greater as time goes on. You understand what he's talking about here? True spiritual maturity, where we're looking at Jesus and we're becoming filled more and more with Him. He's becoming greater and greater in our eyes. God cannot increase in Himself. He is infinite. And so there is no increasing in who He is. But He can increase in our minds that we start seeing Him a little bigger. We get a greater glimpse of His glory and divinity and the wonder of who He is and His attributes. And we are awestruck by Him. And we want His nearness more than we've ever had before because we see what the wonder is of this God to stoop down and bring Himself to us. In Psalm 1611 it says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's where the name of our ministry comes from. This right here, In Your Presence Ministries. 
right from this verse, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your presence. You see, that's where that joy is found. And guess what? I mean, we can all, we can all say this. In the busyness of life, you don't find that joy, do you? But in His presence. In His presence where we are trying to walk in the presence of God, even in the workplace, even in our situations. But so often we get so distracted that we don't even understand what happened. And how do we move so far away from You so quickly, Lord? But He wants us to know that fellowship. He wants us to understand that fellowship. He wants us craving that fellowship because that's what we are created for. We're created to enjoy Him. Prayer should not be this agonizing time that I just got to do my duty, but it should be something that we begin to learn what is to enjoy Him, where we love being in His presence, where we just yearn for that. Have you ever been in the place, have you ever come to the place where prayer becomes so precious to you that you can't wait to get there? That you can't wait to be with Him because your heart is just, just yearning for Him. It's just, you're desiring Him because you've tasted of Him. You've been touched by Him. You've touched Him. And you know what that is. Now your heart is panting for that more. You want to go further. You want to go deeper. You want to experience Him in a greater way. You see, there's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is conditional. It's on according to outside circumstances. So we can be happy one moment and not happy the next. Because what? We're looking at our outside circumstances. And if those circumstances change to the negative, then we're not happy and we're, we're angry at life or angry at God or angry at whoever took our happiness from us. But you see, joy is relational. Joy is where we have this relationship with God and that's where we are getting our life from, from that relationship. So, Paul and Silas now, they're being co-laborers, missionaries together. And Paul, being the, the one that was the preacher, he's preaching, and guess what? You know, they're eventually rested and beaten. Okay, rested, beaten, and they're thrown in the deepest, darkest part of the jail. Now, what would you and I do? I want you to think about that. What would you and I do? Would we have a little pity party down there? Say, oh God, I'm just trying to serve you. Why is all this bad stuff happening to me? Right? I mean, how many of us would do that? Delve into self-pity. Delve into this way of thinking that is just fed from hell. Instead, you know what they did? Uh, I'll tell you what, their bodies were hurting big time. They were beaten severely. But you know what they did? About midnight, they began worshiping and singing unto Him. And it tells us that as, as they sung, that all the prisoners heard their song. They were singing. And all the prisoners were saying, Who are those men there? We don't sing. There's no joy in this place. How joy come in here? How joy get in the prison because there's no joy in prison? How'd this happen? And then what happened next? An earthquake and all the prison doors just flung open. And all the chains, those that were chained, the chains just fell off. You see, this wasn't a natural but a supernatural earthquake. And when the jailer saw this, he was going to kill himself. Because if you in that culture, if you were a jailer and somebody escaped, your life was forfeited for the one who escaped. So he knew that he would probably be tortured. It would be a miserable time until they finally took his life. So he was going to kill himself so he didn't have to face it. And Paul says, don't, don't kill yourself. And then you know what the man said? What must I do to be saved? Why did he ask that? Yes, you had the miracle that took place of that earthquake and none of the prisoners escaping. But why? Because they saw something in these men that he had never seen before. He saw in them a joy, saw them a peace, saw them this triumphant relationship with Christ that was so radiating and beautiful and splendid. They said, what must I do to be saved? I believe that still works. Still works today. But, you know, we have this difficult uh, promise. Paul spoke it in to the Ephesians in Acts 14.22. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Well, I don't like that promise. You understand? I don't like that promise. I don't want the pain and suffering. But you know what? It's going to come. What am I going to do? Am I going to be... Like Paul and Silas that is worshiping and adoring and loving him through the midst of the trials? Or am I going to be like Eeyore? How many of you know who Eeyore is? 
Okay, Eeyore. He's this donkey with Winnie the Pooh. And what is this? What is Eeyore like? Everything is the blues. I mean, everything is just self-pity. Poor me, life's so hard. It's just terrible. And, you know, I mean, a lot of Christians are little Eeyores, right? Little, these little Eeyores. And, you know, you look at Eeyore, he's mighty cute. But, pff, man, you don't want to be around Eeyore too long because his, his singing the blues on a constant basis is going to rub off. You know? I mean, what is it that we need to be like? The people that just know how to rejoice because he's good. Because we have tasted of Him. We've touched Him and been touched by Him. You see, the joy of this relationship with Jesus gives us victory. You understand what I'm saying here? This joy gives us victory. It's not the joy itself that gives victory. It's Christ. But it's that relationship. When we come to the place where we start walking in His joy, we're walking in a near relationship with Him. And it's from that near relationship that we start having this tremendous victory in our life. You see, this joy overcomes loneliness. That's what drove me to Christ, was loneliness. Just a hippie, partying, constant. I lived to party. That was it. But yet loneliness inside, and I could have told you what it was. I couldn't have understood it, but this ache inside of me. People can go and get married thinking that marriage is going to take care of loneliness. It won't take care of loneliness. Because, you see, only G's can really take care of loneliness. Now, we have a right place for one another. That only we can fill, okay? There's that right place that God won't fill that place because He made us to be a body and to be bound to each other. But when so often people are lonely, it's because they're not letting Jesus rule their life and they think they need something other than Jesus. I need Jesus and a husband, Jesus and a wife, Jesus and a better job, Jesus and this. And so what it is, is there's no joy in that. Because it's not, he's, he's not the one filling everything of your life. He's not the one that's consuming your thoughts and your passion. You see, this joy delivers us from self-pity. Where we're consumed over ourselves and our struggles and why is life so hard? Rather than having a heart that just wants to rejoice in the goodness of God and longing for the day that you can be with Him. Non-escapist view. I'm not talking about just life is so bad I want out of here. I'm talking about the thing where you just love Him so much you just can't wait to get home. You just can't wait to see Him face to face. You can't, be, you can't wait to be free from yourself that you might be in His presence and gaze upon Him with those eyes that burn with fire. See, this joy delivers us from self-centeredness. We're not looking at ourselves anymore. We're not the object. We've gotten our eyes fixed on, on someone who is absolutely, infinitely beautiful. And our eyes are captured, looking at Him, adoring Him, Longing for Him. Wanting Him. This joy gives victory over fear. Because when we're in that place where we are, are loving Him so, so supremely, He becomes the prize of our life. When we're loving Him that way, how can we fear when He's walking right there with us? We can go through pain. We can go through suffering. We can go through loss. We can go through agonizing things. But yet still find that Jesus is able to walk through us. That He will walk through us when we want to walk with Him. This joy gives us victory over pride in all of its various expressions, which includes insecurities and inferiority complex, just, just pride. This joy gives us victory, helps us to overcome sin in general and habitual sin. You see, there is a reason to overcome sin. There is a reason to fight. There is a reason to die. To yourself, to your sinful nature. And when you taste of the goodness of God, when you taste the wonder of who He is, then you see the reason why. Because you say, I want more of you, Jesus. I want to draw near to you. I have tasted of that love that surpasses human understanding. And I want more of it. So God, I know this sin is causing me problems. Help me to conquer it. And you fight because you want Him. If you fight only to overcome sin, you don't have the right motive. He must be the prize. He must be the reason. He must be the motivation. And when He's the motivation, I guarantee you, the grace will be there to help you overcome. Final verse, I'll close with this. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. 
When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. How precious is Jesus to you? How precious? Would you sell everything you have to have Jesus? Would you sell everything? Would you give up everything? Would you give up every dream that you have in this life, every hope? Would you give it all up because you have tasted of Him? You have found the treasure? Now that treasure in the field, it was not His treasure. It was another's treasure. So it wasn't right for Him to take it. He had to get it properly. There's a right way that we get the treasure. There's a proper way that we get it. And we get the treasure by obeying God, by walking in the way that He's called us to. There's a legal way of gaining Christ. And if it's not legal, it's not gaining Christ. You understand? I'm not talking about law. I'm talking about there's a way that He calls us to walk. And we, Jesse and I, were, uh, were out the other day, and we uh, had a chance to witness these couple of men, and uh, some old men. And both of them, well, one of them was, was uh, stage 4 cancer, and... You know, so we're, you know, Jesse ended up asking us, says, well, do you, do you know Jesus? Says, oh, I'm right with the man upstairs. And you know he's not. Nobody who's right with God is going to talk about Jesus like that. Nobody. Nobody. Always a sign that the person does not know who this Jesus is, has no relationship with him, because when we begin to understand who he is, we're awestruck by him, and we would not degrade the splendor and majesty of who he is to refer to him as the man upstairs. See, when he becomes the prize, we'll sell everything. We'll sell our pride. We'll sell our fear. We'll sell our possessions. We'll sell whatever's necessary. Because he's the prize. We want him. On Wednesdays, we've been looking at preparing the way. And you know what? This is the heart that bursts revival. This is the heart. This is the heart where people begin to yearn so much for Him that they're crying for Him to rend the heavens. They want Him to rend the heavens. This is the heart that is yearning so much and He is the prize. Not revival itself and not even the lost being saved, though that needs to be an, that's an integral part of it, but it's just yearning for Him, longing for Him. David went and says, I've seen you in the sanctuary. He spoke of how his heart yearned for God. Because he saw him in the sanctuary. He knew what it was. And he's looking back at this time of whatever that exactly was. We're not told. But he had encountered God. And he wanted him more. He says, I have experienced the wonder of who you are, God. I'm so thirsty for you. When I passed it in California, and after I resigned, that was a, 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 a very troubled church. And Jesse and I are traveling and there was just this ache inside of me, just this ache. And uh, I had worship just playing. And all of a sudden, one of the worship songs came up, and it just had this phrase in it. And it was just a woman singer, and she just sings this one phrase. And she says, I miss you, Jesus. When I thought of that, says this troubled this troubled church I was pastoring, I was trying to bring it so much into Pentecost, trying to bring it into the presence of God, trying to awaken it to hunger, and they just fought and fought and fought and fought to their own shame. And so now I'm driving along and I'm just, I miss you, Jesus. I miss you. I miss your presence. I miss it. I've seen you in the sanctuary. I beheld your glory. I long for you. Father, we come before you now in the precious name of Jesus. Every one of us were, were created with purpose, God. We're not here by time and chance. And the purpose has nothing to do with occupation. That may be a side issue. But that's not the real purpose, Lord. The real purpose for each of us is that we would live the entirety of our life to glorify you. And that we would live to enjoy you forevermore. Lord, I'm asking somehow you take us there. Somehow get us there. God, get us where our life is really consumed with glorifying you. And Lord, that may be something the world says is extreme. You say it's normal. And I happen to think you're right, God, and not the world. Not even the church. So God, help us to get there where you become the passion of our life. The desire, what we yearn for. 
the ache inside of us. God, would you do that? Would you awaken us, this holy ache, this yearning for you? And, and Lord, it's not the ache of the world that just leaves you empty. God, this ache is so beautiful. It, it's this hurt, this longing, this desire that is aching for you, yet it's being filled at the same time as we long for you, yet it grows more intense. And it's just this beautiful, wonderful ache, this, this pleasing pain, as David Brainerd referred to it. God, I'm asking that you would awaken that in our hearts. This desire to glorify you in everything. This desire to enjoy you in every part of life. That you become the consuming passion of everything. Defining everything. That we want this place of nearness with you more than anything in this life, O oh God. Lord, if there's anybody here that isn't right with you, God, I ask that they would see what is separating them from your purpose for their life is their self-rule, is their sin, is their rebellion. And that they would want to come running home to a good God that is wanting them to know what it is to enjoy Him, that they might live a life for His glory where they will find even greater joy in His presence. We ask this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord.